Welcome to episode 82 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Tim Berkey, who served 20 years with the FBI. While assigned to the Cincinnati Division at the Dayton Resident Agency, Tim Berkey worked violent crime and domestic terrorism matters and was assigned a case targeting the Aryan Nations, which at the time was considered to be the most dangerous white supremacist group in the United States. In this episode, Tim Berkey reviews how his informant, Dave Hall, infiltrated the violent neo-Nazi organization. The intelligence gathered by Hall led to the disruption and dismantling of the Aryan nation's leadership. Later in his career, Tim Berkey began working counterintelligence investigations and was transferred to the Albuquerque Division, where he was assigned to the Sandia National Laboratories and supervised the Albuquerque Joint Terrorism Task Force. After retiring from the FBI, Tim Berkey co-wrote with Dave Hall a narrative account of their Aryan Nations case. Their book, Into the Devil's Den, How an FBI Informant Got Inside the Aryan Nations and a Special Agent Got Him Out Alive, is a true crime thriller and a testament to bravery, dedication, and friendship. It's also a timely reminder that Americans' homegrown terrorists can be just as deadly as those from overseas. After the tragic events of Charlottesville, I thought it would be quite appropriate for us to take a look at how the FBI investigates these hate groups. I was really surprised about some of the things that Tim talks about, so I'm sure you're going to enjoy that interview. But before we get to it, just a few things. First of all, I want to remind you that Manhunt Unabomber the miniseries on Discovery Channel has its finale on Tuesday, September the 12th. Remember, this is a fictionalized drama about the Unabomber case. Jim Fitzgerald from Episode 3 of FBI Retired Case File Review is featured as a composite character representing the agents who worked on that case. After you watch the finale, if you want more information about the Unabomber case, you can check out Jim's episode three, and you can also revisit episodes 55 and 56 with Max Knoll, who was the supervisor of the Unabomber task force. In other news, we are still steadily approaching 1 million downloads for FBI Retired Case File Review. I am absolutely thrilled. Now, I know there are other podcasts that have a million downloads every month, but I'm really proud of what we've done here in growing this audience. Remember, I've always said that I started the podcast as a way of introducing potential readers to my FBI crime fiction, but this has definitely grown into a podcast where the retired agents I interview and I hope to assure the public of the FBI's integrity and independence. 
But since it originally was a marketing tool, I got to do a little bit of marketing and let you know that Pay to Play, the audiobook, is now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I decided to make the investment in having the book produced as an audiobook after receiving a number of requests from listeners. But I understand that pay to play may not be for everyone. Inspired by true FBI cases featuring corruption, extortion, sex, money, and more, it's raw, gritty, and has strong language. I have tacked on to the end of this episode the second chapter where we're introduced to Carrie Wheeler, the female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. So stick around after the interview to check that out. When you pick up a copy of Pay to Play for yourself or as a gift for someone who loves crime fiction, you're helping to support the podcast and to defray the cost for me to continue to produce ad-free content on a weekly basis. Plus, it's a good read. So thank you. Now here's the show. I'm excited to introduce you to my guest, Tim Berkey. Hey, Tim. Hi there, Jerry. How are you? I'm doing great. With all of these, these hate groups that have been underground so long have now come out. I know in the late 1990s that one of the most frightening hate groups was the Aryan Nation. You had a case where you were targeting the Aryan Nations. That's correct. And it was a, it was a national case, and you're absolutely right that it was the, the FBI at the time considered the Aryan Nations the most dangerous domestic terrorism organization in the country. Do we consider now organizations like the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacist groups and neo-Nazi groups, are they also considered domestic terrorist groups? Yes, they are. So you were on a squad that was investigating primarily domestic terrorism. Yes, back in the uh, in the late 90s, domestic terrorism came about due to a Nunn-Luger Act, and uh, Congress provided funding for the FBI to investigate domestic terrorism acts and, and violence. This came out of Oklahoma City and the Oklahoma City bombing, and before that, of course, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing was based on the uh, conflagration at Waco at the uh, Branch Davidian compound. And the Aryan Nations had a even longer history. It was formed by uh, Richard Butler, and he formed it in Idaho. And he had a compound, and he had armed guards, uniformed members. And so it was... uh, it was nationwide as well. Butler had his leadership outside of the uh, the compound in Idaho. It was at Hayden Lake, Idaho. And he also had an individual by the name of Harold Ray Redfern, who at the time was believed to be the heir apparent to Butler when Butler passed away. And uh, Harold Ray Redfern ran the church in southwest Ohio. I should say the Aryan Nations Church, which was also called the Church.
Church of Jesus Christ Christian. And so it had a twofold look to it. It had the uniformed members, so it had the political side, and it also had the Sunday religious services run by Red Farron. With a philosophy of racist ideology, of hate. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it was a church. <laughs> it was a, he was an ordained minister. He wore a, he wore a preacher's outfit, black collar, the whole bit, and uh he was he was fiery, but he was also he was also very talented, a very good speaker, and he could draw people in. He would he could convince people of of uh, his racist views and um, did it very successfully. He drew about 30 to 40 white males every Sunday to church and they would bring their families and then there would be the uh, card-carrying uniform political meeting after church. And that, of course, is uh, where the concern was because that's where the problems would come from. Problems like the planning for violent acts. Um, they followed the Robert Matthews in the order, which was back in the 80s, and which ended in a shootout at Whitby Island, Washington. So they were robbing banks, credit unions, armored cars to fund the movement. And Red Farron had a similar philosophy, but Red Farron had also spent a number of years in jail, he had shot a uh, Dayton police officer. Uh, fortunately, he did not kill the officer, but seriously wounded him during a traffic stop in the late 70s. And at the time, the laws were, the laws in Ohio at least favored individuals with mental illness. He, he was a, a psychopath. And he, they deemed him as, um, as a mentally ill. So he spent about a decade and a half in prison and then was released. And that's when he formed the church in Ohio and also aligned with the Aryan nations. Wow. This is really fascinating because I did not know anything about this church part of it. I mean, people talk about, and I know this is going to be controversial as I, as I get ready to say it, but they talk about Islamic extremism. And if you use that word, then in this case, you have to use Christian extremism because they're doing this under the name of the church, which is just absolutely mind-boggling. I wasn't aware of that. Yes. It's very similar, and the um, they justified their evil acts by using the Bible. Now, they used the Old Testament mostly because the Old Testament is, is more story-based, and it's more easily subverted to a violent um, kind of ideology, whereas the New Testament is a little more difficult for them to use it, although... By the name of the church, you know, Church of Jesus Christ Christian. And so, yes, they use Christianity as the, their justification to start what they really wanted was a race war. They wanted a war against Zog, the Zionist occupation government. That's the U.S. government. 
wars against the Jews in the, in the United States primarily, and what they called mud races, which were the minority races in the United States. They, they felt that once this war started, they could form a homeland in the northwest corner of the United States, and that would be their, their own country. And they thoroughly believed that they could get the race war started. And a lot of this is based on the Turner Diaries. And the Turner Diaries is the book that promotes the race war. It was written by William Pierce, who formed the National Alliance, which was out of Hillsborough, West Virginia. And But he used a pseudonym for the book. But the book described a race war and where the white supremacists took over the uh, northwest part of the country. So that was to be their homeland, and that was their goal. Now, I can really understand why, at the time, they were considered to be the most dangerous white supremacist group in the United States because of the fact that it wasn't just the hatred, but they really wanted to kill and you know, create, create this, this world where those people did not exist anymore. That's correct. And the philosophy actually went back to, to Victorian England. It was the Christian identity belief. There's a two seed theory on that. And so in the Bible, Cain slew Abel. And so they believed that Cain was the mud races and Abel was the white. His descendants were the whites and they migrated to uh, Europe, to Northern Europe. And they believed that's why the white race was selected to be the, the only race. They followed the Jewish beliefs and customs as well, which is very interesting because they also believed they were the lost tribe of Israel. Oh, really? Now, this is absolutely fascinating, and I guess the one thing that we need to make sure people understand is that the FBI or the U.S. government or you know law enforcement is not investigating someone because of their beliefs. So the fact that they believe this was not why they were considered domestic terrorists. It was because of the violence that they were promoting. Right. Yes, the, the violence was the reason that uh, we investigated them and the robberies and, you know, the violent acts. The U.S. government is very conscious that there is a constitution and that there is religious freedom and freedom of speech guaranteed. So these investigations had to be reviewed by the attorney general and renewed every six months. So it wasn't that the FBI decided, hey, this was a group that needed to be investigated. It, it had to be, it had to be taken to the U.S. attorney and the U.S. attorney for approval. So those concerns were very much on the mind of myself and the agents around the country that worked these investigations at the time. Now, your particular investigation ended up to be such a fascinating investigation, and we'll go into all the different parts. But it was so unique that you wrote a book, not just by yourself, but with your informant. 
And that book is called Into the Devil's Den, How an FBI Informant Got Inside the Aryan Nations and a Special Agent Got Him Out Alive. What a title. (laughs) (laughs) So for most of this interview, I can tell you that I'm just going to sit back and allow you to tell the story. And while you're telling it, I think I'm going to have my mouth open for most of it in disbelief. So where are you when this case is being investigated? So I'm in Dayton, RA, in Cincinnati. And yeah, I gave enough money for one domestic terrorism agent to be assigned to the Cincinnati division. And uh, I had been working criminal investigations for about six years. That's uh, my first office was Dayton and Cincinnati. So I was intrigued when it became available, the, the, the opportunity, and having worked six years of criminal, I was about ready to move on to other things, and so I raised my hand, and they selected me, and, and off I went. Why Dayton? What was in Dayton that made them think that they needed to devote resources to the Well, the church was between Dayton and Cincinnati. We also had an individual developed who is Dave Hall, and we were one step into them. And uh, because Red Farron was also living in Dayton, Ohio, and he was living with his mother, which I always found very hilarious that uh, this big, tough white supremacist was living with mommy. But nonetheless, um, that's where he was located. So that's where the case was centered. Who's Dave Hall? So. I met Dave Hall in 97. Dave was a good old boy. He was from eastern Kentucky. And Dave got himself caught up in a drug conspiracy. It was a marijuana case. He introduced a buyer and a seller. And because it was a conspiracy case and because it was out of Kentucky and marijuana rivaled tobacco and corn at the time, it was a problem to the uh, to Kentucky that uh, they issued a warrant for his arrest. And, of course, being a conspiracy, even though all he did was introduce a buyer and a seller, he was just as culpable as the rest. And so I received the arrest warrant, and I grabbed a partner of mine, and we went out and um, we uh, we arrested Dave and brought him in. And Dave, I have to tell you, is 6'4". He's about that time probably about 325, 350. His arms were, as I describe in the in the book, his arms were as big as ham hocks, and it was muscle. And he was tatted up and down. He is actually friends and lived right around the corner from the Outlaws Clubhouse, the Outlaw uh, Motorcycle Club Clubhouse and had known these guys for years and he never became a member but he he looked apart and acted the part so we arrested Dave without incident fortunately and we brought him down to the judge in Dayton and the judge let him go on his own recognizance and told him to go down to Frankfort Kentucky and uh, turn himself in down there and and deal with his problems so Dave did that and he met uh, Judge Joseph Hood, who was a Vietnam veteran and a patriot. And he, Judge Hood, recognized Dave's limited role 
in the conspiracy and gave Dave gave Dave six months to help himself out, as the judge put it. So Dave was was all of a sudden back in my lap, and I really wasn't sure what I was going to do with him at the time, and. Um, but I sat down with him and he started giving me information, but he gave me information on low level marijuana cases. And I was in the Southern district of Ohio and cocaine and crack cocaine were the problems. If you were talking a semi load of marijuana, the U S attorney's office may have taken a look at it but probably would have passed it to the state or local to handle because cocaine was just out of control at the time. So we're, so Kentucky and Ohio are separated by a river, but the world apart in, in what was the priority at the time. So for a while, I, I just listened to Dave and took the information, but I just passed it off to local authorities, what he was giving me. And one day and this was several months into it. One day I sat down with Dave and I said, Dave, you know, if you really want to help yourself out, why don't you tell me about the outlaws? Because by then I learned his, his Dave's role with the outlaws and his friendship with several of the current members to include the club president. He didn't admit that to you immediately? No, no, he did not. He, he said, you know, to me, he responded, you know, the outlaws are for real. And I took that to mean that they kill snitches. And that's exactly what he meant. So he was very reluctant to give me any information on the outlaws. But I told him this was his best opportunity if he didn't want to go to jail. And he didn't want to go to jail, so he agreed to start giving information on the outlaws. But along that, about that same time, I received a call from a Dayton police lieutenant, and I had actually worked with this lieutenant when he was a detective doing drug investigations. And he called me up and told me, he said, uh, I was in Ike's Bar, which was a uh, was owned by the president of the Outlaws and was obviously an outlaw bar and in Dayton. And he told me... Well, he didn't, didn't tell me. He asked me. He said, um, I was at Ike's on Saturday night, and I guess and guess who I saw in the bar? And I said, I don't know. He said, uh, Harold Ray Redfern. And they knew Redfern very well because he, as I mentioned, shot a Dayton cop years before. So everybody knew who Harold Ray was. And... That was very interesting information for me. So what I decided to do was I went to Dave and I asked him that uh, I wanted him to go to the Ike's and start drinking. And I didn't tell him at first exactly what I wanted, but I knew that one of two things was going to happen. And they were both, <laughs> either one was good for me. I was either going to learn about the outlaws or I was going to learn about the Aryan Nations. But I knew both of them were bad for Dave, but that was the option that I uh, I gave him. So we started in at the bar, and one day Red Fern came into the bar, and uh, Dave came to me, 
and told me about it. And I said, I showed him a picture. I said, this is the person? And he said, yes. And he, um, I said, so I'm, I'm interested in him. And do you think you can talk to him? And I told him the basics. I didn't give him a lot of detail, but I told him the basics of what, uh, what Red Farron was all about and the Aryan nations and, and that type of thing. So one thing led to another and, uh, pretty soon he was, chatting up with Mr. Red Farron in the bar and uh, Red Farron made an attempt to recruit Dave and Dave rebuffed it and he, Dave came to me and told me that he rebuffed it well I was kind of upset with Dave <laughs> you should have you should have uh, taken that opportunity he said no no I know what I'm doing he said let's just let's just see what happens here and a uh, little further a little more time went by, and Dave was uh, again approached by Red Farron, and uh, this time Dave accepted, and we were off and running. So the the good news was that we had the head of the Ohio Aryan Nations, who was the heir apparent to Richard Butler in the national level, recruited Dave out of a biker bar, and... So there was no suspicion whatsoever on Red Farron's part on Dave. Now, did he test Dave? He absolutely did. In what and, ways? Well, in one incident, Dave was at the church with Red Farron, and which was actually a, was an old. Um, it was a second floor of an old building in a small town. And it's called New Vienna, Ohio, and uh, so it it was above uh, this storefront. So it's fairly fairly roomy area, but not not like a church church type what what you might consider to be a church. And uh, Red Farron pulled out a forty five and he cocked it and pointed it towards Dave with his hand on the trigger and the gun on the table. And he uh, asked Dave what Dave thought about snitches and informants. And uh, Dave responded to, kept his cool, Dave kept his cool, but responded that uh, he believed that they ought to be invited into the church. And then uh, basically he said that they ought to kill them. And uh, the whole time Dave was holding himself back, he wanted to grab the table and just turn it over on top of Red Farron. And, but, Dave kept his cool, and Red Farron smiled at that point, uncocked the 45, and put it away. So that was one of Dave's tests um, that he had. Uh, the Aryan Nations also did background investigations, believe it or not, to include neighborhoods. And when Dave was away and Red Farron knew it, Red Farron went to Dave's neighbors and asked about Dave. And, and uh, of course, being kind of a tough neighborhood, they, it, the information flowed back to Dave. But uh, he was uh, doing his due diligence to check out Dave. Had Dave ever been charged with a crime before? Had he gone to jail before? No, Dave had never been in, in prison. He had, uh, oh, kind of just minor stuff in his background. I think the worst thing he had, he was uh, back in the 70s, he had been... Um, 
picked up for uh, possession of LSD, and the, and the charges were eventually dropped. So, no, Dave hadn't been in prison. All right. So, I guess he passes the yes. test. Yes, he passes the test. And uh, they held him back. They had a couple rallies at the time, and um, they were very very similar to what we're seeing today, these rallies. Um, the big difference being the police and at the rallies in Ohio, they what they did is they had a no man's land down the middle and they had which was full of police and then they had the four on one side and the against on the other with police surrounding them. At one rally they had the police kept snipers and observers up on the roof and so the police kept them in line, kept these these two factions in line. So they they kept the violence to a minimum at these. And uh, but they were recruitment tools for the for the Aryan nations. And at the time there was there was a limited amount of internet, but not nothing as it is today. So recruitment they relied on publicity. They relied on leafletting. They relied on rallies. Uh, to get the message out. So um, along about the time, we had two brothers. They were the Kehoe brothers that came through uh, Dayton, and uh, they were selling guns at gun shows. And the the brothers were driving up on uh, during the weekend. They were driving up towards New Vienna, Ohio, and they were stopped in Wilmington, Ohio. And they were in a suburban, and they were pulled over by a state trooper. The sheriff's department came and backed up the the uh, patrol. And as they approached the car, one of the brothers got out and opened fire on the two police officers. They returned fire, and the van sped off, one brother driving and the other one took off running and later the police we have dash cam footage of this that uh, another police officer blocked the vehicle and the next thing you see is the window just erupted from gunfire and the only casualty that day was a uh, somebody walking down the street that was hit in the leg well at that point, the Kehoes took off again, um, but this time they left the vehicle. They took off on foot, and it turned out that they had uh, their wives weren't that far away, and got them and, and got them out. And um, so they got away. But we had the uh, the um, the suburban, and the suburban was loaded with assault rifles and shotguns and pistols. Uh, vests, uh, police raid jackets, that type of thing. Oh, no wonder they didn't want to be pulled over. Yes, yes. <laughs> and why were they initially pulled over? Did the officers who pulled them over have any idea what was in the car? No, they had no idea who they were or what was in the car. It was a simple, uh, it was a registration issue that they had. He had. They had pulled off the highway. They were on the interstate and pulled off and the, the trooper followed them. And uh, it was merely that was merely the what they were looking at is a registration. Looking at the plate, something wasn't right, and they pulled them over. But it was the the coincidence of that being so close, happening so close to New Vienna, to the church, 
happening on a weekend that was right before the Martin Luther King rally in Columbus, Ohio, that we felt that the Kehoes were bringing weapons to the Aryan nations. And whether that was to be part of the upcoming rally and or was it because uh, they were selling guns or what, what the purpose was. Now, the Aryan nations used to keep what they called a war wagon away from their rallies. And it was, it was driven by a member and it was had the weapon, their weapons in it because they were searched when they would go to the rallies. And so the idea was that if they could get the groups into a riot, that this war wagon would drive into the crowd, very similar to what happened in Charlottesville, although I don't think it was a war wagon in that case, but would drive into the crowd at a certain point, and the members knew that, would run to the car and grab their weapons. So it, so the similarity is, is eerie to me, but I think a different purpose. Mm-hmm. So we were off and running, and uh, and of course, having come from working criminal investigations, I was, I felt that I could have this problem handled in a, in a short order of time, and I thought, oh, you know, a couple of months, this, I'll have this resolved. But you know, the investigation turned into years and a lot a lot of effort and uh, i learned a lot during that investigation let me ask you one thing dave hall what were his beliefs did he believe in one race did he believe that others who were not associated with the aryan nation and these other hate groups were the enemy no he did not actually he had biracial nieces and nephews and he was not raised that way. He did not have any belief system. Dave was about having fun, hanging out with his buddies, even though they may have been outlaws, and just having a good time. And then, so this was abhorrent to him, and it affected him very seriously down the road. And it's the one thing I, in the investigation, I always regretted because I missed it. I missed how much it had changed him and how much it had gotten into his life. He suffered from it for years afterwards. Wow. So how often, I, this, is, this is really fascinating, now that I know that he is really not just being an informant, being in a place where he is gathering information that he you know, would gather anyway, it's almost like he's, he's operating as an undercover agent as a UCA, because now he's taking on a persona that is not really him. And, and that's absolutely correct. And he, um, we had looked at trying to do an undercover agent into the group initially, but we couldn't find anybody that was six foot four, 350 pounds, tatted up and down and, and rode with the outlaws. You know, it, it was just perfect. It was a perfect scenario and it couldn't have worked out any better so we kept going the six months ended and so i told dave to go back and talk to the judge he went back down and the judge gave him another six months to help himself out so 
um, Dave came back and we kept going. And at the at a year's point, though, I knew that that the judge would likely sentence him at that point. And the uh, I was in touch with the U.S. Attorney's Office down in Frankfort, Kentucky, and they indicated that that likely be the case. But by then, Dave was so so into the group that uh, I traveled down and spoke with the judge in camera about Dave and what he was doing and was was completely upfront and honest about it. And the judge came out and deferred his sentence. So basically, Dave worked himself out of his problem. As opposed to just getting a reduced sentence, a downward departure, he was able to, at that point, the, the case was put on the shelf Yes. Until everything was done. Yes. So Dave came to me, and I and I knew at that point Dave could leave. He could quit the Aryan Nations investigation. I mean, he had done everything he needed to do for his legal problems. So Dave came to me, and we sat down and we talked about it. And he that's when he pulled out the pictures. He said, these are my nieces and nephews. And they were biracial. And he said... I'm going to continue to help you, but I'm going to do it for them. And uh, I said, that's fine. Whatever your motivation is, Dave. So we kept going. And that uh, that was a turning point, both uh, for my – I never trusted Dave 100%, but I gained a different respect for him at that point. And uh, it, the rela- our relationship changed, even though in the Bureau you're not supposed to be – friends with your informants, it started down that road at that point that uh, he trusted me more and I trusted him more after that. Can I ask you, during that first six months or the first two six months, what kind of intelligence was he bringing to you? What were you getting out of it? So it was national intelligence. And what had happened is Dave was brought in as a as a uniformed card carrying member of the political arm of the Aryan Nations. The other thing that Red Farron required was that all his members carry a firearm to church. And so that was a problem, right? Because Dave's Dave's under the under the thumb of the court, the federal court at that time. So in that six-month time, I went to the U.S. attorney in Frankfurt, and I asked him, or I told him, what was going on. And I, and I said, for Dave to keep going, he cannot, you know, I understand he can't take a firearm to church, but we're done if he doesn't take a firearm to church. The U.S. attorney down in Frankfurt went to Judge Hood, and Judge gave him gave Dave permission to carry the gun to and from church and to carry it while he was in church, but no other time. And that was unprecedented. I've never seen it before, and I've not seen it since. And it was it was uh, it was so unusual. Um, we had Dave had to report to a probation officer, but we had the probation officer in in the Kentucky side across the river from Cincinnati because we felt that uh, the likelihood of him being followed down into Kentucky was slim. 
So the the probation officer calls Dave and said, "You got to be down here immediately." And so Dave thought, "Well, you know what's going on." So he drove down, and the probation officer said to him something to the effect, "I've done this for twenty some years, and I've never once saw any order like this." And he he put down the order to Dave that the judge gave him permission to take the gun back and forth to church and to wear it during church services. And so we bought Dave a gun and wow. that's exactly what we did. So it was, it was building up trust. And it also Red Farron, because he recruited Dave, because he trusted Dave was bringing him into the fold even deeper and he was also giving Dave, was mentoring Dave on the religious side and would have Bible study with Dave. They would have meetings in different parts of the country. The Aryan nations would have meetings in different parts of the country. And Butler would show up at some of these and other leaders. And because of Dave was trusted, Dave would be the bodyguard during these meetings. And he would sit with these guys while they were, whether it was in a hotel room or wherever it was, at these various venues all around the country, listening to their strategies and reporting it. So I spent my uh, my Mondays debriefing Dave from his Sundays, his meetings, or after his trips, and then we would send the information out all over the country. And, and back to FBI headquarters on what the Aryan nations were planning and who was involved and who were the leaders. And, and it was, it was really good, good information that was going out. Where and what other places around the country were there Aryan nation churches? I mean, how big was this nation? So the, the next biggest one was in California, and Newman Britain was the one that ran the church there. It was near San Diego. Uh, we had uh, we had some in Phoenix, and uh, there was a big at that time a big Hammer Skins skinhead organization down there. We had another church in Texas at that time, but the one in Ohio also drew from Michigan, of course, Ohio, a little bit on, on western Pennsylvania, a lot from Ken- northern Kentucky, a lot from southern Indiana, a lot from southern Illinois. Which, Anything on the east coast? At that time, what did we have on the east coast? You know, I don't think we had anything on the east coast at that well, time. Don't be disappointed. I'm not I'm not disappointed. Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. The one in California was unique uh, because it was in an urban area, but most of these most of these places around the country were um, were rural, and uh, the one in Ohio certainly was. So, uh, and it, I have to point out too that the, the southern uh, Ohio, southern Illinois, southern Indiana, northern Kentucky have long been clan hotbeds and people don't realize that and so they were they were the feeders the clan was a feeder to uh, the Aryan nations people came to the Aryan nations because they wanted to do something they they inspired violence 
And so if they got tired of the rhetoric and they wanted to do something, they came to to an Aryan Nations church. All right. So at a, at a clan meeting, they may talk about doing something, but they realized that nobody at that point anyway they weren't was actually yeah. Yeah, going to do something. Now, and if I'm jumping ahead, just let me know. But at this point, are you seeing any violence? I mean, have they actually done violent acts or are, are they still planning for the big one, the, the big war? Well, so, yes, we did see it. So what had happened was we had a member, his name was Daniel Rick, and he was a young member that Redfern was bringing along. And he, and at the same time, remember, Redfern was a convicted felon. So Redfern was out one night with another member and they were they were in rural Ohio and he was driving the car was registered to Redfern but Redfern was riding in the car a uh, deputy saw it ran the plate recognized the name because he was a jailer uh, on part-time jailer and part-time deputy and he recognized Redfern's name and so he pulled the car over and Redfern didn't stop right away. They didn't stop right away. And they pulled down kind of a side road, more of a driveway. And the deputy had called for backup, but now he's in a rural area. And they stopped the car, and then Redfern would not would not uh, listen to his the deputy's commands to get out of the car. Neither one would. About that time, then, the deputy received some backup from the local jurisdiction, and Redfern then got out of the car and then was seen with his right hand. He was he got out of the car on the passenger side, turned to the rear of the car, faced the rear of the car, but the deputy saw his right hand just twitch. And so they cuffed him and they found a knife in the back seat of the car. And they were able to tie that knife to Redfern. And Redfern got six months. Uh, because he was a convicted felon and he was in possession of a weapon out of that. So during that period of time, Daniel Rick, the young Aryan Nations member, got involved with Dennis McGiffin, who was running a sect of the Aryan Nations. He was also attending services in Ohio, but he had his own uh, offshoot going in southern Illinois. And Dennis formed the new, the, they called it the New Order, on the back of what Robert Matthews was doing in the order. And their plan was to start robbing banks, credit unions, armored cars to earn money for the cause. So they got caught up in a conspiracy by the Springfield FBI, and those all those folks were arrested. So that was one of the violent acts, and uh, I went down to, after Rick was arrested, I went down to his house in southern Ohio and talked talked to his wife and convinced her to turn over the, uh, Rick's weapons to include an AK-47 that he had down there. So I, um, so we had that. We also had some uh, weapons dealing with a group out of uh, out of Michigan, there was uh, Daniel Rick was also involved with this. He 
Daniel Rick was a tattoo artist, and he would go up to Detroit and do tattoos. But uh, they were using the tattoo parlor to launder money for the Outlaws Motorcycle Group, and they were buying weapons from the Outlaws as well. So we were, we were having smatterings of violence all around. Unfortunately for us, though, Redfern was in prison for the six months when most of this went down, and uh, he was never implicated in the uh, conspiracy, although we had... Uh, uh, were able to listen to phone calls from the prison and it was obvious to us that although he was not implicated in the uh, in the new order he knew all about what was going on with the new order but he was not involved in the conspiracy did not make you know he's very careful he knew he didn't want to stay in prison any longer than he had to and he was working to get others to do his bidding so was the whole point at this time to grow their army? They had this this purpose of carving an isolated homeland. So I take it what they needed then is to grow an army big enough to go into war. Yes, and they needed weapons and they needed money and they knew it. And they also uh, eventually, they also... We were, I'm getting a little ahead here, but in Y2K, when the millennium came, they thought that all the computer systems were going to crash and they needed to be ready at that point, too. So they did have a kind of a long-term goal in mind, even though this was, uh, this was, by this time, we were, we were 19, early 1999. Time was approaching. Yes. Absolutely. So, we were we kept going and with the investigation and along came an individual into the church by the name of Cale Kelly and Cale Kelly had been in the army he had been had a fairly successful career had been decorated on a patriot battery in the first gulf war but we pulled his service record and he had the this point where he would be uh, unit commendation driving drunk on base, um, you know, noted for exceptional service selling hash in Germany. And he just had this up and down in his career. And so when he was nailed for selling hash in Germany, they put him in the Leavenworth and uh, gave him a dishonorable discharge. And Kale Kelly came out of prison, and his mother was a legitimate preacher. And he came out of prison and he was ready to go and he needed to find something to take the place of his his army life he you know he he missed it and unfortunately though he hooked up with white supremacists and eventually made it to the Aryan Nations compound and he was a big boost to the group because he had military experience and he was looked upon as somebody who could Give them good training, and uh, and he was a he was a hardcore member at that point. Matter of fact, uh, uh, he we would see Kill Kelly at, at church in New Vienna, and he would be out on the uh, he'd be out on the roof of the church with binoculars and uh, in a uniform, and he he was right at home in his element. What we decided to do was start focusing a little bit more on Kale Kelly, and 
So I had Dave start paying a little more attention. And eventually, Kale was meeting with Redfern. It was obvious they were meeting, the two of them, in, uh, alone. And so one time, Dave was down at Kale Kelly's house, and Redfern was down. And he, and he was living, actually, it, it's more of an apartment. He was living above a barn in a finished room and uh, in rural southern Ohio. The barn belonged to a Klansman, and the Klansman's daughter, Kale, was dating. And the Klansman would hang the American flag upside down every day at his uh, residence with the Klan flag flying above the uh, American flag. So it was an interesting situation. But Kale was down there, and Dave was down there, and he drove, actually Dave drove Redfern down, and Red Farron told Dave to stay on the uh, one side of the barn by the car. He was going to walk around with Kale. He needed to talk to him. Well, Dave, Dave being Dave, decided to sneak uh, kind of through the garage, or sorry, through the barn. Dave snuck through the barn, and he went to the rear of the barn and where Red Farron and uh, Kale Kelly were talking. And he heard Red Farron say something to the effect of, if you go through with this Earl Cable thing, you know, we're done. And then the meeting kind of broke up and they walked back to the, got back to the car and, um, on the way back to Dayton, Dave asked, what's going on with, uh, with Kale? And Red Farron said that, um, he's about to get himself into big trouble. And that was the extent of the discussion. So they gave me that information, the Earl Cable. And so I sent it out to all the offices that had anything with, to do with Aryan Nations. And does anybody know what this means? And I had an analyst from the Louisville division called me up and said, that I think Earl Cable might be the Earl Cabell Federal Building in Dallas. And I, and he said, and did you know that it was on McVeigh's list, but he, McVeigh chose Oklahoma City instead? Wow. But my heart dropped at that point. And, uh, I immediately got a hold of the supervisor and the SAC. And we were off and running at that point. We put a full court press out on Mr. Mr. Kelly and Dave was able to travel. Dave went down to a Klansman in Kentucky and, um, on one of the trips, Kelly told Dave to stay by the car and he went into the barn and he came out with these about four foot long pieces of six-inch PVC with end caps, four-foot-long six-inch PVC with end caps. And he put several of them into Dave's trunk. And Dave asked Kelly if he had to worry about those. And he said, no, you don't have to worry about them. So he brought those back to Ohio, and Kelly took them out of the trunk and put them in the barn where he was living, and of course Dave reported it. We never 
fully understood. We did a, eventually did a search, and we found, uh, I think we found one of them. We never found the others. But uh, it certainly indicated to us that this could be more about bombing. Uh, on one of the trips around Cincinnati, uh, Kelly started hammering his fist on the dash of the car and said, one of those buildings has to fall. And in, so we had all these indicators. And the other thing that we had learned, Kel Kelly also did not, uh, well, nobody liked uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center at that time, but the the leader of the uh, Southern Law, Southern Poverty Law Center was Morris Dees. And Morris Dees, for those that aren't familiar with the Southern Poverty Law Center, Morris Dees was an attorney and he formed the center and he started suing Klan groups. And what he did is he took their assets and essentially put them out of business. And he was very successful with this. So Kelly decided that he also should assassinate Morse Dees and talk to Dave cryptically about it. We understood what it meant. We first learned about this in February. We hit March. Now we're approaching April. And April 19th was the Oklahoma City bombing and the conflagration at Waco. So it was a big deal date for the white supremacists. And we don't have enough at that point to take down Kelly or to fully understand what the plot really was. But is Dee's given any warning? Yes, he told. We we we've talked to we we did give uh, Morris Dee's the warning that uh, his life is in danger. But I, I have to tell you, this this man's life is always in danger. And um, he took it in stride. And uh, he's he Morsty is quite the American hero. But nonetheless, we're faced with the what are we going to do? Well, one thing that Dave learned was that Kelly had a couple of handguns, and he kept them for the most part up in his living quarters in above the barn. And so. We decided to, on, it was, I believe it was April 12th. I would have to look it up in the book, but I think it was April 12th. So we were a week away from, uh, from April 19th. We, in working with the U.S. Attorney, we decided we would arrest Kelly on the gun charges and do a search and see what we came up with. So that's exactly what we did. And it was, the interesting thing is we found in, Kelly's stuff. He had a bus ticket that was dated the next day, and he was going to take off for for whatever we don't we still don't know. But we we got him by one day. Whatever wow. his plan was, he was going to head out on the bus and and conduct his plan. It turned out that Morris Dees uh, shortly after that was going to be in Waco, giving a speech uh, at the at the uh, university. And uh, so we don't know at this point um, what he was up to. Kelly never admitted to it what he was up to, but uh, Kelly got uh, three years out of the deal, and uh, we felt we least disrupted the plan. Um, we later found out that uh, Kelly actually had bought a sniper rifle, and we learned about sniper rifle through uh, 
kind of a side investigation, and he had left it with another with a Klansman uh, because he didn't want to keep it at his place. And Morris Dees uh, sent the office a, a bouquet of roses for for a thank you too. <laughs> so <laughs> I was uh, I was completely devastated by this because. I now lost Dave. Um, he was on the affidavit. We had to move him. We offered him witness protection. He was so close to his mom, he, he opted to take a lump sum, and he took off to another state. I thought, it's over. You know, uh, I'm, I lost my eyes and ears, um, the whole bit. And when but, you say you lost Dave, it's because you had to use his information in order to uh, for the arrest uh, affidavit and warrant to get Kelly. That's exactly right. And we we were hoping we could develop this separately, but we ran out of time. We thought we couldn't let it go to April 19th. It just, um, we couldn't take that chance. So I lost Dave. I learned another lesson, though. And uh, the, the lesson is disruption. What happened is, you know, I mentioned about the new order being taken down. I mentioned about this case up in the gun case and, and uh, money laundering case up in Detroit being taken down. Now we had Kelly being arrested. And what was the common de- denominator there? Red Farron was involved with every one of those individuals and Red Farron never was arrested. And the group turned their eye towards Red Farron. They believed they seriously started to believe that Red Farron was the informant. Long about that time, Morris Dees sued the Aryan Nations, eventually took their compound with a $5 million-plus judgment, and put the Aryan Nations out of business in, uh, nationally. So with all that together, Red Farron never again rose to any prominence in the organization. To the extent uh, I had in 2003, I accepted a transfer to another division, and so I had I took an agent to meet um, to meet uh, Red Farron, and basically I was handing over the investigation, and I um, I left, and I got about a couple months after I arrived at my my new field office. I got a call from the agent, and she said, you'll never guess what happened this weekend. And I said, no, you're right, I won't. She said, Red Farron's dead. And I said, what happened? He, he um, Apparently he had, a week before, had gone in the emergency room, had serious heart problems, and the doctors told him he needed surgery immediately, he ignored him, went home. A week later, he dropped dead from a heart attack. So I figured God got him first. Right. Wow. Wow. And there was nobody else, nobody else who took up that charge either, you know, after he died or when they were suspecting him of, uh, you know, providing information. There was nobody else strong enough. To keep yeah. the Aryan nations going? Well, we did have a part two to this. And yes, uh, Red Friend brought up a fairly charismatic uh, white supremacist preacher out of Tennessee. 
and put him in charge of the Aryan nations, and Red Farron kind of stood back. And this individual um, started uh, buying and selling stolen property, buying and selling guns to raise money for uh, the cause, and we ended up arresting him. And, and just in in uh, July, I believe, of 2001, and um, that was really the death nail for uh, the Aryan Nations in Ohio at that point because when we took this guy down, the organization splintered after that. And it was another mark against Red Farron that he brought the guy up to Ohio, and again, Red Farron wasn't arrested. Then that's basically why I ended up taking a transfer out of the division because I kind of worked myself out of a job at that point. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. All right, I have a couple of questions. One sure. of them, Morris Dees, he's doing these lawsuits. What's the basis for the lawsuits? I mean, obviously he was successful. You know, he was able to win their, you know, property uh, and, and money. But what's the basis of his lawsuits? The one against the Aryan Nations, what had happened was a mother and her teenage son were driving by the compound and they had an old beater car and the car backfired and these brilliant Aryan Nation soldiers thought somebody was shooting at them they loaded up in cars and pickups and they chased down the car ran it off the road yanked the mom and, and son out and 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 really beat the son badly what was and the race what was their race I, the son was mixed race. The, what I recall, the mother was white, but the but the son was mixed race of some sort. I, and I I want to say American Indian, but um, they that's why they beat him because he he looked to them as a mud race member of the mud race. Wow. Morris Dees used that to, for a civil suit, the basis for a civil suit, and and won and and took the compound. Usually it was were acts of violence. He um, actually years later, to kill Kelly's credit, the Klansmen I mentioned that they went down to Kentucky to visit. Morstees ended up suing him, and after Kill Kelly got out of prison, he had a big change of heart and uh, no longer was part of or supported any of the white supremacist movement. And he actually testified against the Klansmen in the in the lawsuit that Morris Dees brought. So he actually turned around and helped Morris Dees out. This is really amazing because, you know, as you're telling the story and we're, we're all hearing now, we're all fearful of American kids going online and being indoctrinated into this radicalism. Right. Yeah. You know, because they want to belong, you know, they're angry. They don't have a job. You know, they want someone to blame, and that's why they get involved in these groups and ISIS and, and, and all of that. Yeah. But when you look at this, it's exactly the same. Because you have people, obviously, who don't truly, really believe in this race war stuff, because later on, they get out of it. They just get, seem to be caught up. Yes, and, it, and you're absolutely right, Jerry, and the... Uh, the belief systems are very similar. So you have, like you said, the Islamic extremists, the Christian extremists, and uh, both are supporting their beliefs uh, through religion. 
Um, a lot of the white supremacist organizations that really they started in prison. It's a they have white gangs and black gangs and Hispanic gangs and so on and so forth. And it's a you have to join the gang gang to be protected. A lot of these guys coming out of prison, they just say once they're done, they're out of prison. They don't have that belief and they they walk away from it. It's what they have to do to survive. But some of them remain ardent supporters and. Uh, so they come out, and as Red Farron did, and and Kale Kelly did, and they believe these things. Yes, a lot of similarities. Yeah, in preparing for you know to talk with you today, you know I'd, I'd like to know a little bit about the subject, and so I I did go on the FBI website, the ADL website, and the Southern Poverty Law Center. So I have a number of articles from those different organizations that talk about violent extremist groups and why people become members of them. So, you know, if anybody is interested, of course, I want them to also, you know, get your book to hear that the actual case, but to also learn about the groups themselves and why people would do something like that. You know, I'm going to have links to these different articles. So we got to get back to Dave before we end our conversation here because sure. one of the things that you mentioned during this is that you were kind of disappointed in yourself because you didn't see how it was affecting Dave. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. So this had, uh, it was not part of Dave's belief system. And uh, he began to uh, suffer nightmares from this. He lost a, a girlfriend out of it. And he also um, began drinking heavily. It, it really got to him uh, psychologically. And to the point that I, uh, one Sunday I got a call from a local police department, a uh, small rural area outside of Dayton. And they said they had picked up Dave on the DUI. And I went to the jail and uh, Dave had uh, told the jailers and the the department that he was an FBI informant of course he was drunk and um I uh I started to realize at that point what was going on in his life and um that was my my first indication although there were plenty of indications prior to that that you know I should have paid attention to and there were there were changes in behavior I knew he was drinking I um you know, I would talk to him occasionally when he was pretty well gone. And uh, so um, he, uh, what happened was when he moved out of state at the time and relocated, he um, he met a gal who um, uh, they dated for a while, but uh, she encouraged Dave to, as therapy to write all this stuff down from his experiences, just just to get it out of his system. And she started reading the, this information. And she was an attorney, by the way. And she started reading this information, and she said, you know, this would make a good book. And uh, that's what kind of started down the road to getting a, a book published. So the uniqueness of the book and the, what made it viable to the publisher was the, our publishing agent came to us and said, there's a lot of books by FBI agents, a lot of books by 
informants, but we don't find any that the two of you are talking together. So the the style of this book is we go back and forth. So you get Dave's point of view, you get my point of view. And you you see what Dave has gone through, you see the, some of the strategies that we were trying to do. And we kind of feed off of each other and uh, kind of the way the investigation went and the way the book's written. So that's the unique part of the of the book. Not only is it a great book, but my God, would it be a great movie. So good luck to you. And maybe somebody will hear this and, uh, you know, remember the case or get, you know, be introduced to it for the first time and, and give you a call. Who yeah. knows? Yeah, we we kept going back and forth of who's going to play whom, and uh, Dave and I just joking around. We never could figure out who would play Dave, but I always had pretty good idea who could play me. You know. So, oh well, Brad, tell us. You got to tell us. Was, you know, Brad Pitt would be one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay. Okay. Uh, so it sounds like then that you and Dave are, you know, you're retired now and. And yeah. Dave, I take it, has moved on to something else. Uh, yeah. But it sounds yeah. like you guys are still talking. Yes, we remain really good friends and uh, associates. And for a while, we were able to uh, get the word out through the FBI. We would go to various uh, conferences and, and whatnot, and the FBI was very good about it. And um, and they would fly Dave in, and of course I was still in the bureau at the time, and uh, we were able to present our story out there, and which was always nice. And uh, so yes, we we have remained close. We became, you know, we trusted each other, and I, you know, Dave Dave trusted me with his life, and uh, so you know, there's not much more trust bond there than that. This is really fascinating, and you know, and I'm sure when you first joined the FBI, uh, you had no idea that your career would take you to domestic terrorism and fighting against, you know, violent uh, extremist groups. When did you decide that you wanted to be an FBI agent, hmm. and why? Well, I think a couple, couple places along the way. Uh, We'll have to go way back, so I'll date myself. I was, uh, in 1969, I was 10 and uh, living in a small town, and we had a major flood, and uh, there were a number of people killed, to include two police officers who were out on a boat trying to rescue people, and uh, they ended up becoming victims. And I always remembered that, and I joined... Uh, a um, uh, explorers law enforcement explorers club uh, a few years after that and i remember writing a report on the fbi and um, time went on i um, I, uh, I followed along and uh, i tried to get in when i was 26 because i had my three years work experience and and my degree and a whole bit but uh, i was not competitive at 26 <laughs> and i knew it walking in so um, I continued to work and raised a family and um, ended up getting a master's degree. And I decided, well, you get two shots with the FBI, and I am going to try one more time, then I'm moving on to something else. And lo and behold, it all worked out. took me a little while to get in, but finally made it. Excellent. This has been absolutely fascinating, and it's 
so timely right now to get an understanding of the mindset of these violent, racist, extremist groups. What would you like to say? I mean, you have the last word. You can talk about this case. You can talk about what's going on in the country today. What would you like to say? Well, thank you. The uh, white supremacist movement ebbs and flows. It has since, uh, well, a very long time. And my history with it goes back because Butler really got inspired in the 50s by this. But you see it ebbing and flowing throughout history, and we can't let it go. We can't let it just pass and and ignore it as well. It's just a bunch of crazy people, because out of that those bunch of crazy people, there's one, two that could do another Oklahoma City or something along those lines, and that's my biggest worry is that we we ignore the domestic terrorism as we're going after the international terrorism. And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Tim Berkey and a photo of Dave Hall and newspaper articles about the Aryan Nation's case and about white supremacist groups and an article from the FBI website about why some people would consider joining these types of hate groups. I also have a link to Tim Berkey and Dave Hall's book, Into the Devil's Den. If you enjoyed the interview, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, you'll find all the social media share buttons. And if you're listening to this on your phone or iPad, you can, of course, share it directly from your device. My crime recommendation for this week is my own novel, Pay to Play. I hired Melissa Rizian Frank, a professional voiceover actress, to narrate Pay to Play. Here's Melissa reading the chapter where my main character, Carrie Wheeler, is introduced for the first time. Chapter 2 Special Agent Carrie Wheeler toggled the cursor between two emails on her computer screen. She took in and then let out a long breath. She didn't want to respond to either. The first was from Justin Fisk, an agent in the Chicago division whom she'd met during a recent trip to the FBI Academy in Quantico, where for the third time in less than two years, she had been asked to conduct an advanced seminar on recruiting and managing white-collar crime informants. She had flirted with Justin at the hotel bar for more than an hour, and as was the rule of the game... Just when she knew he thought she would be going up to his room, she excused herself for a moment and never returned. She always slipped away before things went too far, before it was too late. To know they wanted to be with her was all she needed. When she and Justin bumped into each other on the FBI Academy campus the next day, she had pretended not to recognize him. But now he was emailing her and asking her when she would be returning to the academy for another in-service class. Was he kidding? She glanced at the photo of Kevin and the kids, and then back at the email on the computer screen, a giant placard flagging her shame. She hit delete. The second message, please see me, was from her new boss, Juanita Negron. Carrie hadn't bothered to apply for the job. She didn't need to be the boss to be in charge. 
Her 14 years working fraud cases had earned her a place of influence on the prestigious public corruption squad, the FBI's number one criminal priority. Juanita, on the other hand, had no problem proclaiming her authority. That woman ticked Carrie off. Carrie preferred to stay out of Juanita's office, where she held court and issued edicts. Carrie had hoped Juanita would pop out to get coffee, and when she walked through the squad area, Carrie could casually ask what she wanted. But it had been almost two hours, and Juanita had not yet made a move. Carrie sighed, gathered up her notepad and pen, and went in to see her boss. As she tapped on the open door and entered the sparsely decorated office, Juanita peered over the top of her designer glasses and gave Carrie one of her insincere smiles. A mid-market TV reporter in Miami before she joined the FBI, her perfectly applied makeup accented her flawless, caramel-covered complexion. Juanita pushed aside the statistical evaluations she'd been reviewing and held up a single sheet of paper. I can't go back down to Quantico right now, if that's why you needed to see me. It wasn't. But is everything all right? My mother's been ill. Juanita opened her mouth to speak and Carrie waved her hand, swatting away Juanita's concerns. She's doing much better now. She's in remission. Carrie immediately wished she hadn't shared that intimate detail. Her rule had always been, don't ever give them anything to later use against you. That's great, said Juanita, displaying another weak smile. I was actually going to assign you a complaint that came in today. Sounds like bad timing. No, no, what do you got? You have time to work another case? Of course, Carrie smiled. You know me. If it's something good, I'll find a way. You sure? Carrie nodded and took the paper from Juanita. The information block of the one-page form contained the name Tanny Colosi, a telephone number, and a few lines of succinct narrative. Complainant advised that she has information about the head of business licensing and inspections for the city of Philadelphia, Stuart Sebastiani, accepting cash and gifts from strip club owners. Complainant is a stripper at a local club. Complainant requests confidentiality. I thought it was the perfect case for you. Your kind of thing. Strip clubs? Carrie thought, then said, What makes you say that? I heard the Inquirer dubbed you the hall monitor after your second city councilman conviction. This case has the potential to be another public official busted on a bribery and kickbacks indictment. Right up your alley, right? Carrie read the complaint again. Sebastiani, isn't he that boobgate guy? Juanita looked puzzled. Never mind, Carrie said. Go ahead and assign it to me. She scanned the name listed on the paper. I'll go see this Tanny Colosi woman today. Juanita motioned for her to return the complaint form. While waiting for her to scribble and initial an assignment memo at the bottom of the page with her Bulgari pen, Carrie stared at the area behind the desk. Centered behind Juanita was the same signed and numbered watercolor print of an FBI seal and Thompson submachine gun that hung in the office or home of every FBI agent with vacant wall space. She had been promoted more than three months ago, but had unpacked only this one item. Why were there no family photos, no mementos, no plaques or certificates? Can you take one of the young guys with you? Juanita looked up from her desk. They're hanging around the office too much. Carrie glanced out the doorway at the agents gathered in the squad area. 
asking one of the beer-guzzling former frat boys to come to interview a stripper with her didn't seem prudent. Instead, she would bring along conservative family man Everett Hildebrand, just for grins and giggles, a phrase she'd often heard him use. I'll get Hildebrand to help me out. Carolina, really? Hildebrand? She knew Juanita didn't like Hildebrand, but that was no reason for Juanita to use her full name, as if she were a child. The supervisor waited for her to say something, but she kept her mouth shut. Just because he made the mistake of disrespecting your squad car policy doesn't mean I have to shun him, too, Carrie thought. Juanita handed back the form. One more thing. The Citizens Crime Commission Awards Luncheon? I told you, can't go. It conflicts with my kids' parent-teacher conferences. But you're one of the recipients. I appreciate the recognition, but as much time as I spend here, it's my family that deserves an award. She smiled, placed her right hand over her heart, and patted her chest. She left the room without saying another word. Back in her cubicle, she got right to work. She googled the name Stuart Sebastiani. Aha, he is that boobgate guy, she thought. Perhaps it was a quirk of fate that a complaint involving strip clubs and the boobgate guy would come across her desk today. Just that morning, after finding a digital copy of Muffs Illustrated downloaded on Carter's laptop, she had told Kevin she was designating the past few days as porn week. Two days earlier, she had caught Carter looking at sex gifs on his phone. A quick check of his Twitter account revealed that many of the people he followed had porn star names. She was now policing all of his devices. It was as if his 13-year-old hormones had roared into full throttle that very week. She chuckled and thought, Carter would go bananas if he knew I was going to interview a stripper. She called the number listed on the paper. A female voice answered. Hi, is this Tanny Colosi? Yeah, who's this? Tanny, this is Carrie Wheeler. I'm an agent with the FBI, and I'm calling about the complaint you filed earlier today. I want to set up time for us to talk. Oh, I don't know. I think I changed my mind, Tanny said. I was angry when I called. At Stuart Sebastiani? Did he do something to upset you? Silence. Sometimes we try to talk ourselves out of stuff, Carrie nudged, even when we know it's the right thing to do. Still no response. Hello? Are you still there? Tanny let out a long groan. She was clearly irritated, but whether with herself or with the phone call, Carrie couldn't tell. You'll have to come to the club, she finally said. I don't want you coming over to my place. She spit out the address to the playroom, the South Philly strip club where she worked. How long will it take you to get here? You're open now? Carrie asked. It was not yet two o'clock. We open at noon. The lunch crowd is thinned out. If you come by now, we'll have a few minutes to talk. I'm on my way. I'm not saying I'm going to tell you anything. I'll see how I feel after you get here. I want you to be comfortable. Oh, do you? You might have to buy a lap dance then. Carrie paused for a beat and cleared her throat. I hope she's joking, she thought. That will depend on what you tell me. Cool. Just make sure to ask for me when you get here, so I can make you out from all the other business types, said Tanny. I'm a black female about five foot eight. I have on a dark gray suit. Of course you do. Carrie laughed to herself. Tanny thought she knew her already. The typical female law enforcement officer who underplayed her appearance.
<laughs> Tanny was right. Clean and presentable was her standard beauty regime. What about Sebastiani? What about him? You're not concerned that someone will see us talking and say something to him? Nah, he's got no reason to worry about me. Carrie disconnected and called over to Hildebrand, who sat with his back to her, pecking away at his keyboard in a cubicle nearby. He swiveled his six-foot-three-inch, broad-shouldered frame to face her. She liked having him accompany her on interviews. People assumed, with his height and large build, that he was in charge. She enjoyed watching their reactions when they learned she was in command of their two-man team. She liked that, being in control. Hey, Ev, she said. You want to sit in on an interview with me? Definitely. What's up? Not sure yet. I'm guessing it's the usual scorned woman rats out lover. You need me to drive? Uh, I don't think so, Carrie said laughing. She knew he was joking. His was the worst car on the squad. She jingled the keys in her jacket pocket. We'll take my bureau car. Pay to Play, the audiobook, is now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.